Good morning. Whoa, it's like the Colosseum or something up here. So, turn your Bible to Luke chapter 4. All right, Um, let me just quickly put a myth aside. The person holding the camera is a woman and not me. Um, I don't know why, but I've gotten like a dozen. Hey, is that really just a picture of you holding a camera? I'm like, no, like I... I don't own that camera. If I did, I would have sold it on eBay. Um, Because that looks like it's worth a lot. So anyway, well, um, welcome. Really glad you are here. We are going to continue in our series called In the Public Eye. We're taking a look at the life and teachings of Jesus as it's told in the Gospel of Luke, one of our four collections of eyewitness accounts about the life and teachings of Jesus. And and so as we uh, dive into this section of Luke, we're looking at how Jesus kind of springs onto the public scene, under the public eye, and demonstrates who he was, who he is, and what he came to do. And so last week, Pastor Dave preached a, a message out of Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, where uh, Jesus goes into a synagogue, and he uh, teaches from the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, and he reads from the scroll Uh, out of Isaiah 61, where the the, the word of God says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set the, uh, uh, the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And all of that, Jesus says, is being fulfilled in the presence of those who are listening to him. That this mighty act of God is bringing true liberation to his people. He's fulfilling his promise at last in the presence of those who are listening to Jesus in that moment. And that God is at long last becoming king in their midst. And and many commentators say that this statement, this reading of Isaiah 61, is a programmatic statement for Jesus that that basically expresses his mission and intent for the rest of his life as it's told in Luke's gospel. And he sets out his purpose and his life's mission and to, to be and do what Isaiah 61 foretold. And so now that Luke has shown us Jesus' jumping off point, what he came to do, now he's going to show us how he did it. And so with that, would you read with me Luke chapter 4 verse 31. The word of God says this. And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So here now Jesus travels from Nazareth, his hometown, and he heads north. It says it went down. He goes down about 700 feet below sea level here. He goes down to Capernaum, which is a town on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it's kind of his home base region for his ministry and most of his, his adult public ministry life. And he was rejected in Nazareth, and now he's wildly popular in Capernaum. And Luke is beginning to show us not only what is true about Jesus, but what is also true about the various kinds of ways we can respond to Jesus both for people then and for now. We have a choice in how we respond, and it's not always positive, nor is it always negative. And so Luke says that he begins teaching on a Sabbath, that he, he uh, has a practice of teaching on Sabbath days, and, and people here are astonished or amazed at his teaching. They recognize something unique about his teaching. Luke says that it had authority, and, and people recognized it. Mark's version of the same story says uh, that Jesus' teaching wasn't like the teachers of the law. So there's a contrast there. 
We know that it was a common practice in those days for, for rabbis, the, the teachers of God's word, to base their teaching in a long chain of tradition. And so when they went to open up the word, they would cite their rabbinical predecessors. Rabbi so-and-so said this about this passage. And then Rabbi so-and-so disagreed. And then another Rabbi so-and-so said this about that passage. And so it was a long line of tradition. But Jesus' words have an absolute kind of authority to them. In other words, he speaks for God directly in a way that no one else did. See, Jesus is the one who speaks with unique authority. And the people notice. Um, a few years ago, my daughter was uh, gifted some uh, light-up tennis shoes, I think, by my parents. And uh, anybody familiar with the light-up tennis shoe? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a be- beauty to behold. It's just really cool, right? And so a little kid's dancing at night, and it's really cool. But occasionally, Penny would be in my back seat, and we'd be driving at night. And you would be amazed how much little light-up shoes in your rearview mirror look like cops, okay? It is, I mean, it would be, you'd be amazed at how a little tiny tennis shoe could send my stomach into my throat in a flash. Um, you know, I could be going the speed limit, I could have my hands at 10 and 2, my cell phone could be far, far away, and yet... I would go into a total panic when she would just move her foot. You know? You know that feeling when you, th- when you see the police car on the freeway and it's coming? And you're like, I think I was going okay, but I don't know. And he whizzes past you and it's like, <gasps> that huge sigh of relief. And so, uh, you know, it's just those moments where I was like, I think I have a mostly pretty good record, but I still have this instinct when I see those lights, those little pink and blue lights that look like a police car, it just gets me and the anxiety hits. And why is that? Well, it's because we all have ideas about authority, don't we? We have ideas about authority that come from our experience with authority. And so those lights in the rearview mirror were not a good experience for me, right? Because my view at that point of authority was cops are out to get you, right? And, and, and to the extent that we see Jesus in light of our preconceived notions about identity, or about authority, I'm sorry, we will box him in and make him in our own image, see, if, if we have experiences of authority that is pushy and exploitive, we're just going to want to reject Jesus right off the bat because he speaks about being a king and having lordly authority in our lives. Or we might make him into our buddy, this kind of sage-like coach who helps us through life when we need it, but we're really calling the shots. We put him back on the shelf the moment we feel at ease because we don't want him to really deal with authority in our life. Or we might uh, use Jesus to push others around as a kind of weapon because we really think that's what authority is about. Or maybe we've had uh, an experience of authority that's just all talk and no action. And so we look at Jesus' promises, we kind of hold it at arm's length away, and we say, well, those may have been good ideas, but I highly doubt they're very applicable to my life. Because no authority has ever really delivered on what they promised. Right? And so the logic runs just like that. And Luke continues to share his eyewitness account or the, the eyewitness accounts about Jesus 
One of the things that happens is we begin to realize that his word is unlike others because it has authority. But on the other hand, we realize that his authority is unlike others because it is both potent and it's good. You see, we have to be careful not to start with a picture of authority and then put Jesus inside it. We actually have to start with a biblical picture of Jesus and understand true authority from him. See, a Jesus you create can't really, a Jesus who's a projection of your own desires or your own experience can't really contradict you. A Jesus of your creation obviously can't challenge you, nor can he help you or even change you. But if you're going to have a Jesus who really helps you and changes you, it has to be a Jesus with his own reality, one that you didn't create. And the Gospels are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus that were written down when the first generation of apostles and eyewitnesses were dying off so that we could have forever access to the real Jesus. And as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see that see what his authority does, and we're going to learn from him what authority really is, and we're also going to see how we can benefit from it. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is two things that Jesus' authority does in this passage. What does Jesus use his authority for? The first thing is this. Starting in verse 33, we see that his authority liberates us from evil. Uh, And in the synagogue, so it's that same day, he's teaching in the synagogue. People are amazed at his authoritative word. And then, in that same synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Now this is uh, one of the first miracles, or the first miracle of Jesus recorded in Luke. And it's one of five miracles or healings on the Sabbath. And, and you can imagine the setting. It's Saturday, your whole community is gathered on its day of rest in the center of your community in the synagogue and you're sitting listening to the teaching of a rabbi you've begun to hear about and, and he's, he's in your town, he's on your turf and you're kind of excited and you're listening and then out of the corner of your eye you see that guy and you start to cringe a little, right? Because you think, oh, he's going to embarrass us in front of Jesus and this is not going to be good. And it's that guy that isn't really well. There's something wrong about his life. He says things he shouldn't know and he gets easily hostile. And other people have been saying he has a demon. And now he confirms it in front of everyone. Luke tells us that this man has a spirit of an unclean demon. There's some debate about exactly what that means, but it is this. It is an outside evil force that exercises authority over this man. It's an outside evil force that exercises authority over him and it recognizes Jesus. It knows who he is. And and this is this place, as you're reading through the Gospels, if you're okay up till now, sometimes you have a problem when you read this. You go, well, this is weird. I don't know where to put this because modern Western people hit a wall and they don't know where to put spiritual evil. 
See, this passage tells us that there is such a thing as supernatural evil. See, the modern secular understanding of evil is aware that evil is out there. It's like we get that it's there, we see violence, we see injustice, we look at cruelty, and we we know it's there. But the modern secular view is that you can reduce all of that down to psychological and sociological or social factors. See, if someone is doing a cruel action, it's either because of some psychological deprivation or some kind of social deprivation. See, if there was education or more, if social dif- conditions were different, it wouldn't be happening. And the idea in the secular view is that if you believe in a devil and supernatural evil, then you're primitive and simplistic. But the Bible and Luke is saying that if you don't believe that evil has a supernatural face and a spiritual root, if you don't believe in supernatural evil outside of us and inside of us, if you don't believe that, if you think that all evil in this world can be reduced to psychological and sociological explanations, then you're the one who's being reductionistic, that you're the one who's being simplistic and deciding the categories ahead of time and you're in big trouble. For example, um, in the years, in the late 1930s and early 1940s, President FDR and other world leaders were being told by the Jewish leaders in Europe that there were atrocities happening under the Nazis to them. But FDR and and others didn't really seem to believe that such atrocities could actually happen uh, in such a refined and educated place. At least their actions indicated that they didn't really believe the news. But in the spring of 1944, a minister uh, at the president's church in Hyde Park uh, actually, uh, um, sorry, I completely lost my place. Things you don't say when you're speaking publicly, but I did. Here we go. All right, here we go. Sorry. Uh, President's pastor in Hyde Park uh, recommended the writings of Dorothy Sayers, who is one of C.S. Lewis's friends, one of the Inklings, right, and part of that writing group, and had remarked that she had been very influenced by the Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard. And uh, with his fresh emphasis on the doctrines of sin and, and all of its implications for humanity. And later, in a conversation with one of his cabinet members, FDR remarked that Kierkegaard helped him understand the Nazis like nothing else did. He said uh, that he had never been able to make out why human beings who were refined and educated could act like demons. He remarked that Kierkegaard, for him, explained how it was possible for the Germans to, be, to act so evil. You see, under the secular paradigm that reduces evil to the psychological or the social, evil like that was unexplainable. Until he got a hold of the writings of a Christian who gave him a biblical account of the supernatural and spiritual roots of evil, FDR couldn't handle reality. And the truth is, you and I won't be able to either. So you'll be attacked. You won't know where the front is in the battle. And if you know where the front is... You have to believe that there's a supernatural force field of evil out there in the world and in our own hearts. But this story also shows us that not only is there such a thing as supernatural evil, but supernatural evil is always oppressive. It's destructive. It takes over. It damages life. No matter what it promises, it will always, always oppress. And so demonic activity is no less prevalent today than it was then, though for many who don't believe it exists, it's just much more subtle. C.S. Lewis has a classic account of this in his um, book, The Screwtape Letters, about demonic activity. And it's one of the most brilliant depictions of how powerful the influence of the enemy can actually be when it's uh, assumed 
to be completely non-existent because we're not tuned in to spiritual reality. And of course, according to Kevin Spacey's character in The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was to convince people that he didn't exist. Right? So, two people watched that movie in the 90s. Great. So, <laughs> Heck yeah. All right. So, probably not the best movie to quote in church. But that's a good line. So, but what happens, what happens when the supernatural forces of evil run into Jesus? What happens in the story? There's a reaction, isn't there? There's like a very large reaction. Hey, why are you bothering us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And a lot of scholars see in this a challenge to Jesus. By saying his name, Jesus of Nazareth, he's, the demon is supposedly trying to assert power over Jesus. But either way you read it, the demon is not happy to see Jesus, is he? This is not a happy demon. He's, right, he's, he's an upset demon. He's about to lose his ability to uh, exploit and oppress this person. Um, and the demon calls Jesus the Holy One of God. Right? Which is a term that recognizes Jesus as the spirit-anointed and spirit-empowered agent of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, that in and through Jesus, God is bringing the coming age, the kingdom of God, that in this coming age, he will destroy the forces and works of evil. And evil, every time it's in the presence of righteousness, has severe angst. And in the presence of Jesus, there's severe angst on the part of evil. And there's a lot happening in this passage to develop a full theology of demons and how to deal with them and how to know when you're dealing with them. But one thing I want to look at this morning is Jesus' response as it relates to his authority. Look at verse 35. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he had come out of him, having done him no harm. You see, Jesus just simply tells the demon, Shut up. Leave. Go. There's no special incantation. There's not a special ceremony beforehand. No need to ask the demon any questions to find out why it's there, its name, or anything else. Jesus says, shut up, get out. You're not welcome here because the king is here. And this is important for us. You see, Jesus is showing his authority and his power over the forces of evil. And this is an important thing because when you really pay attention to what's really happening, it looks like evil has authority. But Jesus has said, no, the kingdom is here and the king is here and I have authority to drive it out and to defeat it. And his authority and his power is so great that all he has to do is speak a simple command. Shut up, leave. You go back to the original question now of what do we learn about real authority from Jesus? See, Jesus has a power and authority to deliver and liberate people from evil. And evil takes on a lot of different forms. Sometimes the demonic. Certainly. Many times. But also, oftentimes, the flesh. Right? And so evil sinks its claws into us from every angle it can. And maybe you have had an experience like this guy, where you have an oppressive, harassing, accusing kind of voice that just won't leave you. Or maybe you just have a habit that just keeps wrecking you and your relationships. 
Or maybe you're in a place where uh, you've kind of just given into the flesh and you have this attitude that's become so sour that instead of being a person who sometimes grumbles, you are now just a grumble who is sometimes personal. Or maybe more subtle yet, you've become so pleased with your own goodness that you have no room for God. And so evil, wherever it has roots and hooks in our lives, Jesus has come to liberate us from it, to deliver us. And he uses his power to bring freedom, not more oppression. And we have to be careful here because when we see authority, we think sometimes if I submit to it, I'm going to lose power and I'm going to lose control of my life. And I might even end up being like a religious weirdo. But the biblical picture is that all of us are under power. All of us are under authority. The question is, which authority, which power? Where am I being ruled and by whom? You see, is it a gracious, is it a kind and righteous authority? Or is it malevolent and evil? You see, again, I've said this before and I'll say it again, but Bob Dylan says it best. Right? You're going to have to serve somebody. Right? <laughs> It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you are going to serve somebody. And this is, this is the, the theology of the section. We're realizing that we all serve someone, but Jesus comes to liberate us from evil so that we can be transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is a done deal where there is no right that evil has over the one who is in Christ because they are under the Son, under the King And so to surrender to Jesus' authority is to experience real freedom from self, real freedom from sin, real freedom from the powers of evil. Would you do something this week in your community group as you reflect on the discussion questions? Would you just share a way in which you have experienced freedom at the hands and word of Jesus? Do that with somebody this week. Encourage them. And so this story shows that Jesus' authority destroys evil, by the way, without destroying us. And this is so important. And when there's a demon involved and you think you're dealing with that, you have authority in Christ because you've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into his kingdom. And you go to the one who has authority and you speak his name and you tell evil to shut up and leave. And you read scripture and you believe it and you apply it because in the presence of righteousness, evil cannot thrive. And Jesus drives out this demon to show that he is, in fact, Isaiah's servant who is anointed by the Spirit to set captives free. But the second thing that his authority does is this. His authority restores us to wholeness. Look at verse 38 with me. And he arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now, we'll meet Simon more next week. But Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And so he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So not only does Jesus have authority to liberate us from evil, but he also has authority to restore us to wholeness. And this is so huge. I also love this short little story. It's also in Mark's gospel because I just have to say, if you have a mother-in-law problem, there is hope. Right? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine this happening? I mean, Simon has the trump card of all trump cards among son-in-laws. Like, you were dying, but I brought you Jesus. It's like, no longer can you say your daughter could have done better. 
you couldn't have done better because I got Jesus. So anyway, so I don't know. Maybe there's an application there, but I'm pretty sure that's not the central point. Here's the point. Uh, Here is a person... Who is who's suffering from a high fever? And by the way, a high fever in this day and age means she's probably going to die. Her life is diminished, and Jesus stands over her again. This is authoritative position and rebukes the fever. First, he rebukes the demon. Now, he rebukes the fever. And Luke puts these stories next to each other for a reason, because he wants us to see that Jesus has total authority over the spiritual realm as well as over the physical realm. That there is no sphere of life and creation where Jesus does not reign supreme and have utter authority. And of course, this story and other miracle stories kind of beg some questions for us. Like, why are some people, like Simon's mother-in-law, healed, but mine wasn't? And, And let me tell you this, that the why question is not easily answered. But what Luke does answer is the who question. He answers the who question with these miracles. See, when Jesus came and began to heal and to restore, he did so to inaugurate, to launch, and to begin the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Uh, And there will be a day when he'll bring it in its fullness. And so these statements where he exercises authority over sickness and places of brokenness are signposts that the king has come and that the kingdom is breaking into this world, and that the king has come to deliver us from evil and heal us in in our brokenness and to right what's wrong. And we see in Simon's mother-in-law a beautiful picture of what we must do when we experience Jesus' healing, the healing that the gospel brings to our life, the healing that is in part now and will fully come one day. See, Luke says that the fever left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. See, there's, there's more going on here than just a picture of Middle Eastern hospitality when you have people in your house. This is a picture of what grace produces in your life when you've been restored. When Jesus' words get a hold of your life, grace produces a life that serves. Is that you today? Are you, are you someone where Jesus has spoken grace into your life and you've experienced the healing that only his love can bring? You've experienced broken places beginning to, to come back together and... And you've responded by saying, I'm going to give my life to serving his kingdom. Or maybe you're here today and you think, and the whole point of that being restored, of healing grace, how is it so I could like kind of relax a little bit? I could just kind of feel good about my life. Well, yes, it's that and so much more. Maybe you're just kind of sidelined in your faith. And you, you know the truth of what Jesus has done, but you're still kind of just sitting there with an old identity Jesus says, no, here's the deal. When I come and I speak my authority to restore life, you know what happens? You get a new life, one that rises and serves. We have this notion in our society that the really good life, the full life, is all about me. That if I'm really living, I'll be autonomous, unimpaired, and unencumbered by the commitments and needs of other people. That's the good life. But who does the Bible reveal to be the most human, most alive, most fulfilled person? Waiting. Why, you guys did worse than first service. Come on. Easiest set up, lay up, answer ever. Jesus was the most fulfilled human, alive person. Man, we've got to work on this. This is bad. All right. So, this is there. Okay, all right. I love you guys, but come on. 
Speak up. All right. So Jesus is this one who's most alive, most fully glorifies God on earth, and yet he doesn't come to be served, but to serve. He's the one who realizes the fullest life is the one that concerns itself with serving God and the deepest needs in others. Notice that that Peter's mom-in-law serves immediately. There wasn't a delay. It wasn't like, well, Jesus has got a hold of my life and I, I probably should like attend a few classes and maybe like wait a little while before I do anything to partner with him and do kingdom work. No, it's like, you're healed. Get up and go. Come on. Right? And so it's this immediate jump into serving and partnering with Jesus. And that's what we see in this next section, that the servant of Isaiah 61 uses his authority not only to liberate the demon-possessed man, but also to restore a fever-ridden woman. But also he does it in a way that personally touches the crowds that come to him with every kind of need, and he brings them to wholeness. Check this out in verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, so again, Jesus has been at this all day. Starts in the morning in synagogue, and now the sun is setting. Right? This is not a lazy man. This is a man who has expended his energy for the sake of others, for the kingdom. And the sun setting, now all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, and he would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Messiah, the Christ. Of course, Jesus refused to let the demons reveal his identity. They were accurate, but they weren't aligned with him. Right? And so Jesus would be revealed only by his words and by his deeds, not by the powers of darkness. And now Jesus' deeds and words would show uh, and show the people and show us what his really what his authority does. It, it, is, it restores. But look how he does it. See, he says that he reached out and laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. See, he could have done it with a magic wand wave. He could have just said, be healed to the crowd and gone home. He was tired. And we know that he had authority to do it. He rebuked the demon. He rebuked the fever verbally. But here, he does something interesting. He restores people personally with a physical touch that reaches out and it connects with each person It dignifies the person who comes in need. It offers a touch that bestows relationship as much as it bestows healing. This is a different kind of authority than the ones we have preconceived about God. This is not not the cops are out to get me kind of anxiety authority. This is the kindness and patience of God who leads us to repentance kind of authority. It's the authority of the one who comes on our turf to free us and heal us, restore us and help us. And Luke now tells us in this next summary at the end of chapter 4 how it is that we can come to experience the authority of Jesus in a way that benefits us. Primarily it's this. His authority is to bring God's rule in us. Look at verse 42. And when it was day, okay, he's been at it now all night. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. He needs a rest, right? And when people sought him and came after him and they would have kept him from leaving them but he said to them I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well for I was sent for this purpose and he was preaching in the synagogues of all Judea the entire nation here's the heart of Jesus' public ministry 
It's his mission to inaugurate God's kingdom, God's rule. It's referred to as the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. It's a synonym. It means the place of God's rule. But either way, it's God's reign and rule in human hearts. See, to have Jesus exercise authority for our benefit means we have to align ourselves with him and with his rule. It's to be loyal to God, to have, give him our allegiance. See, it's one thing to have an opinion that Jesus is king, but it's entirely different to embrace him as king of your life and Lord of the world. Do we know that this morning? Do we realize that? That we have to actually have a sense on our hearts that he's good and his grace is real and personal and requires a response of allegiance this morning? Uh, The famous Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards once said this, that there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of that honey in his mind. So how do we get that sense? How do we move to a place where we have a sense of the beauty and goodness of his rule, to where we long to surrender and walk with him? See, we have to see something. We have to see that the king came not only to rule, but to redeem. You see, when Jesus went to depart and leave the crowd, he went to a desolate place, and it was there that he would pray and focus on his mission that lied ahead of him. You see, he would preach the gospel of the kingdom, the rule of God, but at the heart of this kingdom would be a cost to the kingdom. That the, to be the ruler of God's kingdom meant also to be the redeemer of the world. That there in that desolate place where Jesus went to pray, he would be thinking of the place of utter desolation. Where he would take on the payment and burden for sin. Where he would endure the brunt and brutality of evil. Where he would cry out the, the cry of utter God forsakenness so that we could speak out God's utter closeness. See, because ultimately he would go to the cross where he'd take our trouble so that we could have his peace, where he'd suffer for sin and offer payment for it so that we could become in him the righteousness of God. And see, when you see that, when you see what the kingdom actually costs and you believe that he's done this for you, then he can be your king because he's become your savior and your redeemer And with that sense of his goodness and grace on your heart, you can trust his authority in your life and surrender to it. And allow him to begin to tear away the places where evil has grasped you. And liberate you from sin and self and the powers of evil. Where you can trust him to heal places in your life where you've been plagued by brokenness and fragmentation and diminished life. Because you trust his word and apply it and embrace his power to transform us. To make us new creatures and to partner with him in his mission of enacting and proclaiming the kingdom. And so today as we approach communion, I want to give some space for us to consider this king. To take a moment, don't rush to the table. The highest priority right now is not to get the bread and cup and get back to your seat. The highest priority is to sit in the presence of God and consider the cost of the kingdom and the tender kindness and personal touch of this king. Is he the one you want to rule your life today? Is he worthy of it? Is he good enough to do it better than you? 
Are there places in your life where you need him to liberate you through his forgiveness and through his power to begin to undo the works of Satan? Are there places in your life where you need healing, where his grace and his closeness needs to put things back together? Are there places in your life where you've said, I'm going to be my own authority, I'm going to rule and reign myself? You have to just say before God, I want to surrender to you, I trust that you're good, and I want you to rule and reign in my life in every way. Consider those things this morning before you come to the table. And as you do, as you surrender to the king, come and nourish that faith once again on the concrete goodness of Jesus to lay his life on the line for you and for me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a good God, that you have sent your son Jesus and your spirit to bring new life, new hope and transformation, to set us free, to heal us and rule and reign in our lives. And we want to surrender to you on every level. We thank you for all that the bread and cup means today. And we come to you once again to proclaim our faith in you and to renew our desire to follow you. In Christ's name, amen. Come to the table when you're ready, friends.